I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. If you're just joining us for the first time, I'm Jennifer Grayson here in Los Angeles, helping you and also myself live a more evolutionarily aligned life. Along those lines, I'm so excited to bring you today's guest, Herman Ponser, a biological anthropologist at Duke University who is here to talk about exercise and metabolism and how everything we thought we knew in the modern world about exercise and metabolism is basically wrong. Much of this has been gleaned from his work his research with the Hadza indigenous people of Tanzania, one of the few remaining true hunter-gatherer peoples on earth. Obviously, cultures evolve over time, but the Hadza are a glimpse into what life may have been like, not only for uh, the Hadza people, but also for us 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago. Um, as evidence, as just a really cool note I will add about the Hadza that's not in this today's episode, as evidence of how uniquely um, evolved this culture is, they speak a language known as an isolate, which means that it's unrelated to any other language on earth. Okay, before we jump in, I just want to thank you all for your support so far, for your ratings and reviews on iTunes. If you haven't left one yet and you're really enjoying the guests and the show this season, please go ahead and leave a rating and review, hopefully a five-star review, but I won't tell you what to do. Uh, if you have guest suggestions, please shoot me an email at info at jennifergrayson.com. If you want to see how I'm uncivilizing in my own life and working all of this information about our evolutionary past into my modern life in Los Angeles, follow me on Instagram. That's at jennifergrayson1. And I'll leave you with Herman Ponser. I'll see you soon with a new episode. Herman Ponser is an associate professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. His paleontological and human biological fieldwork across Eurasia and Africa has revealed revolutionary insights on how evolution has shaped our physiology and health. His articles for popular audience have appeared in the New York Times and Scientific American, including the one we're going to be delving into today, Evolved to Exercise. Herman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I have to ask you just right off the bat, just because we're pretty close in age, and I've never met another Herman before. I love the name <laughs> Herman. So where, where does your name come from? Yeah. Uh, people are always surprised that I'm not a lot older. Yeah. In our generation, really I should say. I've known many Hermans, you know, in my grandparents' yeah, generation. Yeah. Even that's a surprise to me. I haven't met many Hermans, period. But anyway, so my grandfather's name was Herman. Um, my dad's name was Herman. I'm Herman the uh, third. Uh, we named our boy Herman although he goes by Alex's middle name. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a long tradition. I'm, I'm, I'm only the third one, although we all have different names. So if you're, if you're scoring at home, it might not count. Depends on, on the rules you use for, for what is, who's the second and third and all that stuff. But basically, I didn't have a choice. I was going to be a Herman. Well, it's, it's a lovely name. I hope you've enjoyed having it. <laughs> you know, it, it's in the world of Googling people, having a weird name has become, you know, sort of an, an unanticipated benefit I have to say, I don't think, in, you know, in the late 70s, uh, my folks thought that that was going to do anything for me. But um, it's been, I think it's probably been a plus. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I, you know, I have a very common name, Jennifer. I've always been one of a thousand Jennifers. And uh, my Google search results were hijacked last year. This is a totally different tangent, but um, by a horror film named oh, called God. The Abduction of Jennifer Grayson. So I guess when you have a common name, something like that happens. It's, it's good to have yeah. an original name. Yeah, well, I, it's, it's worked out so far. Yeah, great. Well, so let's start with your story then. So I read that you went to Penn State, um, mm -hmm. you and you took a class on human evolution, and that was pretty much it for you. Is that the story? Yeah, that's right. You know, I uh, I grew up in a really small town in Pennsylvania, about an hour and a half away from Penn State. Um, you know, if you in my public high school. If you were one of the kids that decided to go to college um, and you had the grades for it, then you went to Penn State. It was kind of, you know, that was sort of what you did. Um, I only applied to one college. I applied to Penn State not having any idea what I was going to do with my career or anything like that. Um, but I saw, you know, the course description for an anthropology course, human evolution. 
Um, it looked fun and uh, the professors were just fantastic. So that really is one of those big turning moments in my life. I, I didn't turn away from anything else because I didn't really have anything else you know, in mind, but uh, that really tracked me toward a career in anthropology. That's so amazing. I mean, most people don't find their calling at such a young age. Like, what did your parents do? Was that something? Uh, my parents are both high school. My, yeah, they were both high school English teachers. Um, oh, so you so, come from an academic family? Yeah, I guess. Uh, you know, um, the part of Pennsylvania I grew up in was very much a factory town, uh, and so certainly, you know, having parents who were not working at the factories, um, who had, you know master's degrees and, you know, and were lucky enough to live a life of, you know, ideas and, and literature. They're both English teachers and just loved, loved it. Um, you know, I wasn't unique in that regard, but I certainly was lucky that way. Yeah. It's so interesting because I also grew up in a small town, although it sounds like you grew up in an even smaller town. Like how many people were in the town where you grew up? Yeah. So you can, you can Google it. Kersey, Pennsylvania, K-E-R-C-Y. Um, it's about 800 people, I think. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's too small to have its own high school. So we went to high school, you know, down the road in St. Mary's, Pennsylvania, home of Straub beer, which if you're a beer drinker, if you can find a Straub and you're outside of Western Pennsylvania, good for you. That's a hard thing to find. You know, I am a beer drinker and I've never had Straub. So. Yeah, I'm sure you haven't. And and I don't want to get your hopes up, but uh, it is, it's a rare find. All right. I will put that on my list of things to do the next time I'm yeah. in rural Pennsylvania. Uh so it's interesting, though, because when you grow up in a small town, and I did, you know, you're surrounded by all this beauty, you're surrounded by a lot of nature. And yet when I was a kid, I could not wait to get out of there and go to the big city and have art and culture. And now that I'm older, I find myself like really appreciating what I came from. So mm -hmm. what what's your journey been like? I mean, I know for a lot of our listeners, they're drawn to human evolution because there's this intense dissatisfaction with the life we're uh, living now and how modern it is and, and how overwhelming it is and how disconnected we are. So uh, what's your experience been like? Yeah, well, you know, um, I, I didn't have that same feeling like I needed to get out. Um, I think, you know, by the end of high school, I was ready to go because, you know, high school's kind of tough for, for most people. Um, but anyway, you know, I grew up in a really small town in the middle of the woods uh, and, you know, my dad, you know, hunted and so I hunted. Um, and we spent a lot of time, a lot of free afternoons and free days walking outside. Um, we didn't really call it hiking. We just would go on walks around, you know, through the woods. Um, and so, and then we got into, you know, riding, uh, ATVs. So a lot, there were a lot of great trails. You could go riding trails. Uh, when I got older, I started mountain biking on them and running on them. And so I spent a lot of time outdoors, uh, being, you know, in the forest, and, and I loved it. I, I actually didn't have any feeling like I needed to get to the city. Um, I, I was, again, I was happy to leave, uh, to leave town and kind of go out on my, my college adventure when it was time for that. Um, but you know, I, I kind of, I didn't realize, I guess, how much I was going to leave behind and never really be able to get back to. Uh, and so I think having that background, spending a lot of time in nature, spending a lot of time, you know, hunting and getting your own food, picking blackberries and, and that kind of thing, um, kind of grounds me and gives me a perspective that I think is useful when I think about, you know, uh, sort of a broader perspective on, on the human experience. Um, I think I, it, it kind of broadens you beyond what you might get if you grew up in a suburb or a city. Uh, but at the same time, I haven't been able to go back and get those elements back. You know, I, I'd, I think sometimes it would be fun to go back and, and be able to do more hunting again. I haven't hunted since I, I left, uh, you know, I left Kersey. Um, so we fish a little bit now. We still do a lot of hiking. Uh, but, but yeah, you do leave a lot of it behind, and, and it's been a great background. But I'm not sure how much you can always ever get back, you know? Yeah. Although, you, I mean, you've certainly had some amazing experiences. And I guess, could you say that you've hunted in your work with the Hadza in Tanzania? You just went along I, with them. I mean, I <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that. I'll say this: that the first time, um, so from hunting as a kid, uh, it has almost no romance to me at all. You know, I think that people who sort of rediscovered as adults, uh, when I talk to people about this, who are kind of you know getting back into it, or, or or maybe they grew up in a city or a suburb, but they never had a chance when they were kids, and so they wanted to discover hunting and fishing and living off the land kind of stuff. Um, I think that's great. Uh, but I think sometimes there's a, a romance there for it because it's new to them. 
that I think is probably gone for me um, because, you know, hunting deer in Pennsylvania means a lot of very cold hours and days, freezing yourself, to, you know, uh, in long walks and lots of sitting and being quiet. And when you're 12 years old and a skinny kid uh, freezing your butt off for a day, you know, and not talking at all, isn't that much fun, to be honest with you. Uh, right. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of look back at it now and think, oh, that was, that was nice. But, uh, you know, I, I would like to hunt again because I would like to have that connection to my, you know, d- I, I think it'd be a fun thing to do. I'd like to have that connection to my food. Um, and, uh, I missed that part of it. Um, but, oh, sorry. So, and I got off track a bit, but when I go hunting with the Hadza, it's a lot of walking, man. It's a lot of walking and a lot of waiting and a lot of hours that you get nothing. And that's just the way hunting is. Yeah. Well, um, tell me more about that because that, you said, you mentioned this romantic ideal. And I think that's so perfect to talk about because I think a lot of people romanticize, especially now yeah. our life is so filled with just sitting in front of a computer and technology. People romanticize mm-hmm. this idea of what it would be like to live as a hunter-gatherer. And you've seen it up close. Yeah. So can you tell us what it is like? Maybe not to dispel some of that romanticism, but maybe just to give us a realistic picture of, yeah. of what it's like. Yeah. Sure. Um, well, you know, life is tough. It is physically really demanding. Um, you don't have any of the, you know, you, when it rains, there's not a, a great house with a great roof to, to run inside of. When it's cold, you don't, you can't turn up the heat. When it's too hot, you can't turn on the air conditioning. So all the creature comforts are gone. Um, and I think that that's sort of easy to say and harder when you're experiencing it. You know, it's sort of more real. Um, but I'll give you a kind of day in the life of what it's like to be a Hadza hunter-gatherer, for example. So you wake up at dawn, uh, and, you know, just because you're a hunter-gatherer doesn't mean that the kids aren't crying and <laughs> need your attention and, um, you know, that are fighting with each other and all oh, that amazing. stuff. All that, all that same tell family me stuff more about that. I've never heard anyone give that description. Really? So yeah. kids fight even in Oh Tanzania. my gosh, are you kidding me? Kids are kids, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think, I think you spend the first uh, few days you know, in any new culture, uh, but certainly the first few days of the Hadza camp, noticing all the differences, and then you sort of notice all the similarities, right? So, um, you know, once the differences kind of fade a little bit, you're like, oh, that, it's it's really just like like home. You know, kids are running around, causing trouble, you know, annoying each other, fighting each other, <laughs> fighting about stuff, all the stuff little kids do. Um, you know, the parents. Uh, are groggy in the morning because the kids were, you know, didn't let them sleep enough last night. And, uh, and so oh, you kind of start hilarious. your day. And, Even though they're uh, sharing the same hut, right? And they're yeah. close. Okay. They live, so they, so they live they're in these doing the houses. same stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, completely, man. They live in these grass houses and, um, sometimes they sleep out outside the house on, you know, on the ground and they always sleep on the ground. They don't have, they don't make, they don't build beds. They, they sleep on, um, skins and, and blankets that they put on the ground, whether that's in their house or not. Uh, and you know, the kids are right there next to them sleeping too. Um, they're all kind of in a, you know, in a, they're co-sleeping, which is a, a pretty typical thing to do cross-culturally. Um, but you know, if you've ever spent the night, um, you know, with a kid <laughs> in your bed, you know that it's, it, it's actually a little bit hard to sleep very well because they're like rolling over and punching you in the face and kicking you in the belly and all that kind of stuff. So, you, you know, have two kids, I should say, for our listeners. Yeah, I've got two you, little kids. You know so firsthand. I, I'm not just speculating. I, this is experience. And if anybody out there knows, you know, maybe I'm doing it wrong. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to take advice on that one. But anyway. I actually love when my kids punch me in the face. I kind of don't, <laughs> don't Yeah, well, it. see, there you go. There you go. Some of it, some people are just uh, e- easier with it than others, I guess. Um, I should say I don't mind, but it's not the best way to get a, a full night's sleep. A good night's sleep. And I should say that when we stay with them, you know, we, we kind of stay on the outskirts of their camp. And so we're in tents and our own tents and stuff like that, um, kind of on the periphery of their, of their uh, camp. Uh, and so you sort of can watch the camp wake up, which is kind of fun. Um, and then, you know, everybody kind of is milling around their houses and, and talking and chatting a little bit. And uh, typically the women, um, you know, will kind of, get together and, and have a conversation about where to go that day. You know, where do they think they want to go to get food? There's no refrigerators, of course. There's no easy way to store your food at all. Um, when you wake up in the morning, you eat whatever's left over from the night before, but 
you know, it's not like it was in the refrigerator and Tupperware the whole night. It's, it's whatever's happened to it has happened to it. Um, and you know, but it's, you know, you eat it because it's your, it's, it's breakfast. Um, and then, you know, women typically will go off in a group, you know, maybe six thirty or seven o'clock. It gets light around six. So by seven o'clock, seven thirty, they're off, uh, to go, you know, in a group usually to go forage for maybe it's berries that day, or maybe they're going to go dig, uh, for wild tubers. Um, there's a bunch of different plant foods that they know how to get, you know, when they look at a landscape, uh, like they live in, you know, they, they don't just see a beautiful landscape. They see each individual tree as, a, you know, as it's the species it is and, and what it's, they can use it for. So they're kind of, they see the world as a, a big market, which is kind of cool to, to experience. Um, but then, you know, they're off and, and they're walking for an hour or so maybe to get to where they're going and it's hilly and rough and it's, the sun's already hot cause you're on the equator. Uh, guys will go, you know, they, they, so men, men hunt and women gather. It's kind of the typical, you know, uh, hunting and gathering division of labor. Men will hunt, they hunt with bow and arrow that they make themselves. Uh, and they'll go hunt usually individually. So occasionally they'll go off in pairs. Maybe they, you know, two guys want to go off and get, uh, the kind of plant they use to make poison, uh, for their arrows. Uh, or they'll go off together. Maybe if they're going to get, if they're going to go for honey because they also, men also, uh, get a lot of wild honey, uh, to bring back and to eat themselves too. And, um, but if they're hunting, which is most days, uh, then they go off by themselves because they hunt, you know, they kind of, they, they walk and walk and walk and walk and walk. And when they encounter an animal, uh, they sort of stalk it and, and sneak up on it to get a close shot with their bow. And so they feel like they do a better job with that. Uh, by themselves rather than in the group. And so if you're a Hadza guy, you know, you spend the entire day uh, out walking and walking and walking, you know, lots of miles. Um, and, you know, it's it's a lot of hungry and thirsty walking. Um, you know, you can you can grab a handful of berries on your way past a bush, that kind of thing. If you, if you go for honey, then you can eat the honey yourself and, and bring the rest back to camp. But um, it's just a lot of walking and a lot of hot dusty work. Uh, it's, it's hard stuff to do. If you're a woman, you know, maybe you're back at camp a little bit earlier by noon or so. Um, but you've been carrying a, a baby on your back the whole time. And you come back to camp, you're carrying 20 pounds of wild tubers and you'd spent the previous two hours digging them up with a stick out of pretty rocky ground. Uh, and you know, you get back to camp and there's the kids to deal with and, and, uh, the, the food to prepare. And, um, you know, firewood to gather and uh, water to go get, and then it, kind of the day wears itself out, and um, men are back from hunting if they went out that day, and uh, people kind of sit around a fire and chat, uh, catch up, and share food. All the food gets shared, I should say. Um, you know, and then then it's nighttime, and you hear people chatting into the night. They don't. You know, they, they, it gets dark around six, so you don't want to be out out much if you don't have to be. Um, but, you know, you're back at camp with the fire going and, and uh, having a chat and go to bed or, you know, late at night and, and it all starts again the next morning. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a simple way to live and you're surrounded by a lot of friends um, and family, which is wonderful. Uh, you're outdoors the whole time, which is great. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a lot of um, just a lot of kind of a lot of walking, a lot of work. Um, a lot of, a lot of dust and dirt and it's not easy. So, you know, it's a, it's a really cool culture and a wonderful lifestyle and the Hodge are just wonderful people. Uh, but I think, you know, there's not a lot of romance there really. It's, it's a pretty tough way to make a living. Right. Right. And so how long were you there? Um, well, have you been so, several times? I know you did. Well, the major yeah. study that I want to talk about, but yeah, right. tell me about I, how many times you've gone. I've gone, I guess I've been in Hadza camps for three different seasons. Um, and each one of those trips is, you know, a month or so long, something like that. So, um, you know, I'm, uh, I haven't spent years in Hadza camps. Um, I work with people who do, which is how we're able to do it. You can't, you can't sort of parachute in and, and, and work like, you know, wouldn't work out that way. Uh, I work with Brian Wood, who's at UCLA now. Um, he's a Hadza expert. He has spent, you know, years uh, of his life by now, you know, all together, um, working with the Hadza. 
Uh, and uh, I also collaborate with, with Dave Reichlin a lot, who's moving to USC, um, so your neighborhood. And uh, he's, you know, Dave, Dave is like I am, where we have kind of targeted questions that we come in to work with the Hadza to, to address, uh, but we're not there every summer or every year. Right. Well, let's let's talk about some of those questions because I know that your study was that back in 2012. Yeah, well, that the, made so, so the many headlines. For that. That's right. The, the the study came out in 2012. The the field work for that was 2009 and 10, mostly 2010. Okay, so I mean, it basically upended everything we thought we knew about diet and exercise. Uh, so, how did that study come about? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So you know, so the the premise of the study was that um, we knew, quote unquote, knew that if you're a, a much more active person, that you'll burn a lot more calories every day. And that's just how things worked. It seems so obvious and intuitive. And of course, it's what we're all told and still uh, today. Right. You go to and, spin class and they say, Work it, keep going. You can have that extra cupcake. You can burn it That's exactly up. right. Yeah. Right. You, can, you can earn your donut, you know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so um, the, you know, one of the kind of pieces that goes along with that is this idea in public health yeah, that you see a lot, which is that, well, you know, one of the reasons that we have issues with obesity and metabolic disease, things like diabetes, uh, in, in, you know, in the Western world, in the, in the industrialized world, is that we aren't active anymore and we don't burn as many calories as we should be. And so all those extra calories that we're, we should be burning, we would be burning if we were hunter-gatherers, um, instead those calories build up as fat and that's why, you know, we become overweight and have these metabolic issues. Um, and so that seems like a completely intuitive, straightforward uh, assumption, and, and, and it seems to be, you know, kind of obvious that that's how it has to work. Uh, but, you know, nobody had, had, had ever actually measured how many calories you burn every day as a hunter-gatherer. Nobody had ever actually gone to a hunting and gathering group. There had been lots of research with hunting and gathering populations, but nobody had measured, you know, the calories they burn each day. And so, wait, I uh, have to just stop you there. When did that aha moment come about? Did that that they hadn't done that? Yeah, that just uh, seems like such a major thing. So up until yeah. now, everything was an estimate. I mean, that's just kind of mind blowing. Right. Well, you know, I think two things. One is, um, the uh, people were so sure that the estimates were right. Uh, it just made such intuitive sense that nobody thought it was worth checking in a way. You know, and there's there's a fair amount of that kind of thing in science where. You know, somebody, it, maybe we don't have the technology to measure something, and so we, we estimate it and we make a guess. And that guess just feels so right that, you know, five decades later, that's the guess is still what everybody assumes to be true. And it, it ends up being really hard to kind of uh, tackle those old ideas because everybody is so sure that the old ideas are right that they, they don't see the value in measuring them. Um, and the other reason that nobody had ever done it was that it's expensive and hard to do. Uh, so, you know, you have to go out and live with these groups. Um, and the, the method we use is a, an isotope tracking method that you need to buy this specially uh, enriched water that's really expensive to, to, to make, and so it's really expensive to use. Um, it's called doubly labeled water. I should say it's, it's totally safe, and we use it in, you know, uh, in the U.S. and Europe and in nutritional studies all the time. It's the gold standard for measuring calories per day in anyone who doesn't live in a laboratory, right? If you want to know calories per day in normal life, you need to use this, it's called the doubly labeled water method. So it's totally safe and, and, and uh, it's the gold standard method to use, but because it's so expensive and because everybody was sure they already knew the answer, nobody had bothered to do it. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, and from my point of view, you know, I was trained in anthropology and in human evolution. Uh, and so I didn't come at this from a public health perspective at all. Uh, I was just interested to know how many calories humans burn every day. And I realized that the only data that we had was from industrialized populations. Well, I, there was some farming data, but almost all of it was just from, from industrialized groups. Um, and, you know, as an anthropologist, somebody interested in human evolution, that's, you know, the world today is this weird zoo that we've built for ourselves. You know, it's, it's, a, it's right. completely divorced uh, from the way that we evolved and from the lifestyles that our bodies are kind of built for. Uh, and so, you know, data from folks in the U.S. and Europe, that's interesting, and depending on the question, maybe it's, it's what you need to have, um, but if you want a kind of a, an evolutionary perspective on human physiology and, and energy expenditure, well, then you, you just know, if you have this perspective, this evolutionary perspective, 
you're going to have to go and, and see what that's like in you know hunting and gathering subsistence farming cultures because that's where we're all from oh, a few generations ago yeah i mean just to quote you you say ideally the study population lives in the same environments in which the species originally evolved where the same mm -hmm. ecological pressures that shaped its biology are still at work yeah that's and many exactly of us right. cannot say that today no you know yeah. uh we live in uh we live in these weird zoos that we've built for ourselves and um <laughs> so so right, you know, it's if you want to have a broader evolutionary perspective, you have to go to those kind of, of cultures. Right. So, okay, so you come across the fact that there's missing data. That's right. And so we went out and we, you know, we got the money to go out and, and do this work. I should say that getting the money to get this work, we, the National Science Foundation funded it, which is amazing. It's, it's lovely that they did that. Uh, but it took a few rounds of, you know, of, of uh, proposals to get the money because, again, you know, the reviewers, even in the science of anthropology, a lot of reviewers said, well, we don't really need to do this. We, we know that these, you know, the hunter-gatherers that we, you're going to work with, we know they're super active. We know they're going to burn lots of calories. What are we really going to learn here, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, and then? <laughs> and then. And so yeah. we went and did the work. And uh, we measured energy expenditures in, you know, in uh, 30 adult Hadza uh, men and women who were you know, gracious enough to be part of the study. Um, and we were totally shocked because, you know, we expected really high daily energy expenditures in these guys. We expected them to be burning, you know, three or four thousand calories a day. Um, turns out not at all. They burn the same number of calories every day as folks in the U.S. and Europe and every other industrialized country that we can can get data from. Um, and so even though they're way more active than you and I are, they get as much activity in a day uh, as you and I get in a week, um, as a typical American gets in a week. Uh, even so, they only burn as many calories as, as you and I do. Okay, well, I... I'm not going to sound super shocked because I've read all of the, yeah. I already read all of your background. I saw, by the way, the amazing video where you talk about your study that it was, I think, for PRI, where you talk about how there was a giant savanna fire involved in all of this. And we'll, oh, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to post the link to that because it's an unbelievable story. But I, so, but for our listeners, this is kind of, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, wait, what? So you're saying yeah. that the Hadza with hunting and gathering all day long, the, their climate, everything burn the same amount of calories per day as I do sitting here right now in yeah. front of my computer. So explain that. I mean, that can we talk about yeah. that a little bit? Because yeah, yeah, totally. How, can so, that be, how is that possible? Exactly. Yeah, that's what we asked ourselves, too. Um, and so first, I'll say that, um, you know, your first instinct as a scientist, when you get a really strange result, is to assume you're wrong. <laughs> That's, that should be your first <laughs> assumption when you right. get a result doesn't make any sense. So we checked this. Uh, we had a different way of estimating the calories per day using heart rate with the Hadza. We got the same answer. Um, we look, we've now looked at other uh, populations around the globe. So, you know, indigenous groups in South America, for example, same result. Uh, we've looked at uh, other species, right? Because we don't think this is just a human thing. We think this is a phenomenon that's probably true of all, you know, all warm-blooded animals. Um, and so if you look at laboratory, laboratory studies, um, animals that, are, that are, are asked or made to work harder and harder and harder each day for their food, they don't burn more and more and more calories. Their energy expenditure stays the same, even you know, in sedentary or active conditions. Um, and my favorite one is this. If you look at, uh, you know, because we're an evolutionary anthropology lab, we look at not just humans, but we also measure energy expenditures in other primates. So we do a lot of work in zoos, for example. Um, and if you look at primates uh, in zoos versus primates in the wild, same number of calories per day. Uh, so, you know, we go to the, the, the Los Angeles Zoo, wonderful zoo you've got. Uh, you look at the, the chimpanzees and uh, other primates in the zoo there. They're burning the same number of calories every day as their counterparts are in the wild. Right. Uh, Which, so, I mean, echoes what you said before about if we in Los Angeles are also living in a form of a zoo, yeah. we humans, I mean, and then you're following yeah. the Hadza who are living a more wild existence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's right. pretty amazing. So it's this phenomenon we see all over the place. And so here's here's what we think is going on. And I should tell you that, you know, we're still in the, in the kind of discovery phase of this. Uh, we, we spent the first few years after that discovery 
uh, with the Hadza, making sure that this is a really robust phenomenon, that it's, a, you know, that it's not just something strange about that population or that circumstance. Um, and so now we're, we're confident in these data that uh, we call it constrained total energy expenditure. So the idea that, that your body works very hard to keep the total calories burned per day within some narrow range. Uh, and that seems to be true for humans as well as other species. And so what we, what we uh, believe is going on is that as the body, as you're more and more physically active, you know, uh, so if you're a Hadza man or woman who's very physically active versus someone in the U.S. who's not, um, the very physically active person, their body is adjusting the way it burns calories on other physiological tasks. So things like immune function and stress response and, uh, you know, reproductive uh, function, all of those functions uh, get suppressed a bit and it makes room for all of this physical activity so that at the end of the day, when you add it all up, it's still the same number of calories as it would be for someone who's much more sedentary and is their body kind of has the luxury to spend more uh, energy on things like immune function and reproduction and, and stress response. Right. And I almost have to flip that a little bit or think about that differently because I know you're talking about that their immune system function maybe is suppressed, but isn't that what the human norm is? I mean, aren't we talking yeah. about the fact that our immune system function is elevated and maybe is it possible yeah. that the reproductive problems in the modern world, so many women having trouble getting pregnant, I mean, maybe that's yeah. an abnormal so, state, right? This, it, the implications are seemingly endless. Yeah, no, that's a really important point, and I'm glad you brought it up. So that's that's right. So the you know the the physically active condition is the normal condition. <laughs> that that's right. what humans are built to do. Um, the sedentary condition is not the normal condition, um, but our body is kind of you know the way to think about it perhaps is that your body kind of sees this opportunity, right? Oh, look, we have all these extra calories we can burn because we're not at our limit yet, uh, and so you you crank up. Um, you know, all these physical tasks, physiological tasks that you wouldn't otherwise do. And you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the reasons um, that sedentary lifestyles lead to so many health problems and conversely why exercise is so good for us. Um, so to take, for example, take immune system, for example, um, one of the big uh, causes of heart disease and other metabolic diseases, the other kinds of diseases that we're likely to, to get sick from um, here in the U.S., um, one of the main causes of that is inflammation. Well, what's inflammation? Inflammation is um, an innate, nonspecific immune response uh, to you know, any kind of pathogen invasion. And so it's sort of your body's first response. It's your body's sort of knee-jerk reaction to, uh, to a, an assault, right? Well, um, if you think about it that way, then, then inflammation basically is you know, chronic levels of high, chronic high levels of inflammation are basically an overreaction of your immune system. You know, you're, we're sort of, we're reacting too readily, too quickly to these, you know, perceived uh, insults. And so you do that all the time, um, and eventually you get all the problems that come with it, hardened arteries and that kind of stuff. Um, reproductive system, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure that being sedentary um, necessarily is, is a cause of, you know, of women who have a hard time getting pregnant. I, that's actually not an area I know very well, so I won't, I, I'll, I'll be agnostic about that. Um, but what I can tell you is that people who are more physically active, um, you know, we call them chronic exercisers in the public health world, they have lower testosterone levels, lower estrogen levels, lower progesterone levels uh, than people who are sedentary. Um, if you go to the Hadza, for example, men have half the testosterone levels um, as men do in the U.S. Um, and we know that really high reproductive hormone levels, if it's estrogen for women or if it's testosterone for men, are, seem to be related to uh, rates of reproductive cancers, right? So, um, you know, we've known for a long time in, in the public health literature that exercise, regular exercise, is one of the best things you can do uh, if you want to reduce your risk of, um, of ovarian cancer and breast cancer and, you know, prostate cancer for men these reproductive system cancers. Um, and I think that that's the, the mechanism, I think, is that exercise helps to suppress sort of overproduction of these reproductive hormones. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. So, I mean, just to kind of summarize the takeaway is that the exercise 
doesn't necessarily affect weight loss, but it does affect every other system in the body. Is that a fair takeaway? Yeah, that's right. And that's, you know, what I like to say uh, is that exercise and diet are two different tools that have two different jobs, right? Uh, You should watch your diet if you want to watch your weight. That's the easiest way to manage your weight is through your diet. Um, For everything else, for heart health, uh, for healthy aging, for keeping your brain sharp, you want to focus on exercise for that. So exercise is great for everything um, except weight. It turns out to not be a great way to, to manage your weight. Um, diet is the way to, to, to attack that. Um, but they're both important. And, you know, what I think often when people talk about diet and exercise, uh, I think it's t- they, they talk about them as sort of interchangeable, right? So, oh, well, I hate to watch what I eat, but I'm going to exercise. And that's going to be fine. Um, or, well, I hate to exercise, but if I watch what I eat, I'll be okay. Um, and that really misses the picture here. Um, you need to do both if you want to really keep yourself healthy and, and aging well. Right. And obviously, I'm you know radically oversimplifying here. And that's, I mean, unfortunately, that's kind of what happens in the media too. And so I just have to ask you, like after this whole study came out, because we're so diet and weight obsessed in the Western mm-hmm. world, were you worried that the takeaway was going to be, well, I guess I don't have to work out now. I burn no, the same amount exactly. of calories as a Hadza hunter-gatherer. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, I mean, has that, that been was, the backlash? That was a, that is the backlash. Uh, and you know, yeah, we published a Hadza study saying, look, no matter how active you are, your body will eventually adjust. And by the way, I, I want to say one thing: it isn't that your body adjusts day to day. So if you run a marathon today and you didn't yesterday, you're going to burn more calories today, right? The adjustment isn't that fast. Um, we're talking more about sort of your calorie expenditure, uh, you know, averaged over a week is sort of how your body thinks about it, not day to day. So there's fluctuations day to day. Um, and the adjustment isn't immediate. So if you start an exercise program tomorrow, you're going to burn more calories for a while, for a couple of months, actually, until your body adjusts to that new level of exercise. So I just want to be, be clear about that. We're not saying that your body burns exactly the same number of calories every day, no matter what you do. It fluctuates day to day. Um, your sort of week-long average is what your body seems to be worried about. Um, but that's right. So when we said that, when we showed data saying that no matter how active you are, your body's going to work to burn the same number of calories, um, you know, the implication for obesity then is that diet is more important uh, in terms of the societal levels of obesity than exercises. Because if obesity is, is fundamentally about taking more calories in than you're burning off, well, if the burning off side of that equation is kind of stuck, well, then the problem is in how many calories you're taking in. And that's what we said in the papers, and that's uh, how we presented the work. And we were careful to say in those papers and careful to say whenever we talked to journalists about this, because there were a lot of media interest, that it, this doesn't mean you don't exercise. <laughs> exercise is still really important. <laughs> right. Um, but of course, I think... Uh, that you're right, that, that you know, the media wants to oversimplify, and there's reasons for that. It's, it's hard to get nuanced arguments across when you only have you know, 500 words, um, and I get that. Uh, but the takeaway, I think, for shock value as much as anything in some cases, uh, was, oh, you don't need to exercise anymore because it's not going to help you with, uh, with, uh, with weight loss or, or with weight management. Um, and that's not what we said at all. But anyway, uh, yeah, the... the, 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 the you know, the most recent Scientific American article uh, looking at how important exercise is, you know, sort of a response to those critics, I think. That's what I was uh, going to ask you, because it seemed yeah. almost like a follow up, like it, to say, OK, well, obesity in the modern world may not be directly tied to our lack of activity, but exercise, here's why exercise is pivotal. And so you write, unlike yeah. our ape cousins, we have evolved a dependency on physical activity. We must move to survive. So. I'll, I'll put the question in your words. What is what is ape idleness? What did your findings tell you about human evolution? Right. So if we look at our closest relatives, the apes, you know, where we kind of came from in the deep past, all the apes, chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, bonobos, they're lazy, right? If they wore their Fitbits, they would never get 5,000 steps a day. Um, humans get sick if we don't get our 10,000 steps or more a day. Uh, and, and it's because uh, we have come through this last two million years of being hunter-gatherers and, and adapting to that lifestyle. And so our bodies are built 
we come into the world uh, expecting to be physically active. And if we're not, it's like taking away an essential piece of our, of our lifestyle. And, and um, it makes us sick. It doesn't make the apes sick. Um, you know, an, an ape in the zoo, a chimpanzee in a zoo might have 10% body fat, if, if, if that much. Um, they, they stay lean and they stay healthy even if they're pretty sedentary. Not us, right? We need it. Uh, and we need it because we have come through this evolutionary history of, of having it in our lives every day. So what happened in our evolutionary history? When did we diverge yeah. from our lazy ape ancestors? That's right. So, so humans diverged from, um, from the other apes about 7 million years ago. So there's this population in Africa uh, that basically splits and one of those you know, populations becomes the ancestors of chimps and bonobos today. So they're our closest living relatives. Um, and the other population ends up being the ancestors of us. Um, so that's 7 million years ago or so. And for you know, 5 million years after that, we're still living a pretty ape-like existence. Um, those early ancestors of ours are bipedal, so they're walking on two legs instead of four. Um, but they're basically very ape-like in terms of their diet and their way of life. Uh, and then around 2 million years ago, um, we see a really big behavioral change. And so we see a shift away from an ape-like lifestyle um, and toward a, a, a lifestyle that uh, has more meat in the diet, is from probably more active because you know there's a lot more plant food on the landscape than there is uh, animal food. And so if you want to start hunting more or eating more meat in your diet, you're going to have to go further for it so you get more activity. Uh, and we see evidence of, of sharing, right? So we see, uh, you know, cut marks from stone tools on big animals as big as a zebra, uh, for example. And that all starts around 2 million years ago. So what we're seeing then, you put those together, some hunting, more activity, sharing. You're, you're seeing the beginnings of a hunting and gathering lifestyle. And that is, uh, you know, we see a, changes in the teeth that reflect that, you know, smaller teeth. Uh, we see some increases in brain size, which we think kind of go along with this more sophisticated way of, of getting your food and making a living. Um, and we call those, the fossil species that go along with these behavioral changes, we call those uh, the genus Homo. So that's, those are the beginnings of our genus, our, our species group, right? So we're Homo sapiens. Um, we don't show up till much later. But two million years ago is when we first see uh, fossil ancestors that look enough like us and behave enough like us that, you know, we sort of cross that threshold from ape-like to more human-like. So uh, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna well, say, so from a DNA standpoint, I mean, we are still very much that early human in terms of oh, expecting yeah. to, you know, go across the landscape for long distances, tracking prey. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's, that's two million years ago or more that we make that that behavioral shift. And of course, like everything else in evolution doesn't happen all at once. It kind of happens slowly. Um, but there's, there's no going back. And um, you just see, you know, brain size just increases from two million years till today. Uh, sophistication, you know, stone tool t sophistication and other, you know, material cultural sophistication just, just keeps on increasing, um, you know, from two million years ago through today. Uh, and, you know, we, we figure out how to, you know, use fire about a million years ago or so. Um, we get really good at, at following animals and, and seasonally, you know, taking down different game depending on, you know, when they're migrating through our territory, for example. So all these really sophisticated things that we do, uh, working together, uh, getting this diet that's really high in calories because you know we're we're targeting the the richest foods, um, but all the while being incredibly physically active to make it all work because we're covering instead of covering maybe a, a couple kilometers a day like a chimpanzee might do, um, now these you know, the, these fossil ancestors over the last two million years the norm would be more like ten or twenty kilometers a day, right? And so when humans evolve, Homo sapiens evolves around 300,000 years ago, uh, we are just one more twig out of this, this branch of hunting and gathering uh, species that, you know, we, we come from hunting and gathering stock. That's, uh, that's what we're built to do. And, and uh, like any species that's sort of adapted to its environment and adapted to its, its way of life, 
we're adapted to be physically active uh, just like we've been forever. So what's happening to us now then as a species from an evolutionary perspective that the vast majority of humans not only no longer hunter gather, but right. we don't even take those 10,000 steps a day. We don't eat food that resembles anything most humans ate for most of human history. I mean, yeah. are we devolving? What What's happening? Well, what so, do you think I mean, is going to happen? <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? So I think, you know, all of all of what's happening today and by today we can even say since, you know, since industrialization, for example, so since, since sedentary lifestyles and cities and modern conveniences, all of it's happening so fast that an evolutionary perspective on, on what it's doing to us is almost the wrong, the wrong time frame, right? Things are happening so fast that we aren't going to adjust to them through evolution. Uh, instead, we get sick, right? We, we're, we're, it's happening too fast for us to adjust to them by changing the way our bodies are built. Instead, we have these ancient bodies in these very new landscapes, and we get sick, you know? Uh, and so this is a whole area of public health. In fact, a lot of public health these days, is, and I'm glad to see it, is more and more you know, based in this idea that modern lifestyles are so radically different than the lifestyles that we evolved in that a lot of those differences make us sick. Now, I should say a lot of those differences also help us out, right? So, in the, you know, like I was saying, hunting and gathering lifestyles, it's, it's not this sort of romantic, perfect past, right? We, we have to also recognize that things like um, modern medicine, you know, vaccines, uh, indoor plumbing, uh, you know, those are all good things, too. And those are all the reasons that the, many of the reasons that humans um, in the U.S. and in Europe can still expect to live a lot longer um, than folks in a hunting and gathering society like the Hadza. Uh, certainly our kids survive a lot better because we, infectious disease doesn't, doesn't kill you know, kids in the U.S. at the same uh, kind of terrifying rate that it does in these indigenous cultures. But, but you know, we want to take those good advances and we want to sort of also not forget the good pieces of, of, of diet and lifestyle and activity uh, that'll keep us healthy, um, you know, especially into our, in our adult years. All right. So that leads me to the last question then, or second to last question. Uh, how can we live a more evolutionarily informed life? What do you do? What, what was your routine before we got on the phone today? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm not, yeah. This is a great example of, you know, how well do I practice what I preach? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure we want to get into that. <laughs> Uh, no, we I, do. No, I I, uh, I love to exercise. Um, I like to run. I really like to climb, although I haven't got it. I find a hard time getting time to do that these days. Um, but you know, I think that. Well, I I know that if we can be more physically active, if we can get outside more, if we can, um, you know, eat unprocessed foods and 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 watch how much of them we eat. Uh, I'm confident that we're going to live healthier, longer lives. And that's, you know, that is evidence from all sorts of work. That's the kind of work that we do with the Hadza and other indigenous groups. That's from work that people have done in public health in the U.S. for a long time now. Um, you know, I, I think the message is pretty clear. I think the direction we need to go isn't, you know, isn't a mystery. I think changing our lives in ways that, that those kind of behavioral changes are sustainable, that we, we do commit ourselves to getting out and exercising every day, that we really do resist the temptation to eat you know, a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's the tough part. So I think you know, we know what elements we need to bring in uh, to our lives. Making that happen is a real challenge. Right, right. As, as you and I are showing everyone right now sitting in front of our computers on Skype. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. going to go for a run after this, but before I let you go and go on with your day and hopefully get your 10,000, is it 10,000 steps we should get every day? 15,000? What's... So, I mean, there's no evidence um, that more is ever not better. <laughs> this is a funny way to say it. Maybe. Yeah, I but like that. 10,000 10, 10, steps is a great benchmark. Um, more is better. If you were hunting and gathering, you'd probably get, you know, between 15 and 20,000 steps a day. Um and, you know, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to be marathon runners uh, to, to get that. You know, you can, you can change your lifestyle in ways that, you know, you're walking 
hopefully you live in a place, if you have the luxury, you live in a place that you can walk to the shops or you can walk to a restaurant or you can walk to work, uh, you know, or walk to the train. Um, if you can kind of include those elements in or, you know, go for a walk at lunch kind of thing, that's a great way to, to start chipping away at that. But yeah, 10,000 steps a day is, is the kind of the benchmark. More is probably better. Less we know is, is worse. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to put the link to this fabulous Scientific American piece, Evolve to Exercise, in our show notes. I know you have a book in the works. Tell us what's next for you and where people yeah. can get in touch with you. Well, so, you know, on the research side of things, we, we run an energetics uh, lab here at Duke. We call it the Human Energy, uh, Human Evolution and Energetics Lab. Um, and so, you know, we've got a great group of folks here that I am privileged to lead, uh, trying to, to unpack how human metabolism works and, and kind of delve into all these issues that we've talked about a bit today. Um, on the public uh, science side, um, you know, we've got, uh, I've got a book that I'm working on, like you say, that, that covers a lot of this work and, and kind of uh, thinks about metabolism and, and how we burn energy from an evolutionary perspective that I, I hope will, people will enjoy and uh, we'll cover some of the HODs work as well. And I'm excited about that too. Well, congratulations. We're excited to see that. And hopefully you can come back on the show and tell us all about it when your book comes out. I'd love that. That'd be a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks, Herman. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head on over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one As with every episode, the resources and links for the show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damian Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll be back soon with a new episode.